So Rory, my mandatory behavioural reset that I would have changed during lockdown would be to push the timeline of nightclubs earlier in the day. I just think having nightclubs so late on is such a waste of productivity, a waste of sleep, and I guess nightclubs don't have windows anyway, so you could recreate the sense of night during the day. I just think it's a very inefficient way to socialise. It's a very interesting point you make, which is that the time of certain things... I mean, you, you make the point that actually Las Vegas has already done this, hasn't it? It effectively, it removes clocks and casinos have no windows. And so you're not conscious of the fact that you're inside gambling on a sunny day. You don't really know what time it is. And sometimes you'll leave a casino in Las Vegas and be surprised that it's light or surprised that it's dark. Cinemas have that effect a little bit, don't they? In that you go into a windowless space and you lose track of time. And sometimes in the summer you come out of the cinema expecting it to be dark and it's still light. Sometimes, of course, if you go to a matinee, you're often surprised that it's light because you have this expectation that you go into a cinema in daylight and come out in the night time. <laughs> but, of course, matinees... And sometimes it's the other way around, of course. In, you know, in long summer evenings or in the north of Scotland, you could come out of a cinema at midnight and it would still be daylight. So you're right. And the other point I've always made is that an awful lot of things like time are the time things happen, which are, if you like, sort of... Um, uh, they've arisen out of network coordination. And... Um, they often get enshrined, even when they should be, to be honest, rejigged, simply because it's very difficult to change the behaviour of everybody simultaneously. I've, I've heard that actually the Berlin nightclub scene basically gets started at about four in the morning. So my friend Paul Dolan is a big devotee of the Berlin nightclub scene. And he says, I'm too old to stay up all night. So what I actually do is I go to bed. I turn up at a nightclub at about six o'clock in the morning when it's all kicking off and then spend the daylight hours doing this stuff rather than, you know, sacrificing my beauty sleep. And the other interesting one, there are a couple of interesting ones. There's the whole question of daylight saving time, which I think is a bit stupid in the UK. A large part of it is really there as a sop to sort of farmers in the far north of Scotland or school children in the far north of Scotland. Now, to be absolutely honest, there's no particular reason why. I mean, I'm, bear in mind, I'm, I'm called Sutherland. We're from Caithness, OK? Um, but the population of Caithness is something like 20,000 people. There's no reason why the schools in Caithness can't just kick off at 10 o'clock in the morning. You know, it wouldn't exactly confuse anybody else, OK? Um, and I don't quite understand that that argument. Uh, you have some crazy things in terms of daylight saving and time zones. Spain, unlike Portugal, Spain should be in the same time zone as the UK. It's extraordinarily inefficient use of time uh, and heat and all sorts of things. The fact that Spain is on the same time zone as um, Central Europe. But apparently Franco did it to impress Hitler in the 1930s and they're now stuck with it. Um, it's just too difficult to change back. And the Portuguese have never, I think, been on the same time. Oh, no, the Portuguese had a brief period where they tried being on the same time zone as Spain for convenience of rail timetables, and they just decided it was ridiculous. But my rant, funnily enough, on that basis, 
the simultaneous chronological reset would actually be the time that theatrical performances are on. Cinemas are OK. You can go to the cinema at five if you want to. You can go to the cinema at 10 o'clock in the evening if you want to. It caters for a wide range of choice. London Theatre Land, you know, operas, plays, um, musicals, etc. Basically, it all kicks off around 7.30, which is too early for you to eat beforehand. And it all finishes about 10.30, 10.45, which is too late for you to eat afterwards. And also, the interval's too short. So if you agree to meet friends at the theatre, you end up exchanging about seven words and they're, <laughs> here are your tickets and where are our fucking drinks, OK? I mean, that's, that's about the extent, unlike Glyndebourne, which has a decent one-hour, ten-minute interval, the rest of theatre and opera is utterly useless for the purposes of being sociable because generally one, you know, one half of the party or the other half will end up turning up five minutes before curtain up then you have this pathetically short interval where all you can do is basically stand shoulder to shoulder and worry about where your drinks are. And then you 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 basically get kicked out onto the... Now, I always thought this was done for the convenience of actors and people who work in the theatre. And then I asked around and they said, no, 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 we hate it too. <laughs> they said people in the theatre hate the times they have to work. They'd much rather either basically kick off at about 615 or, alternatively, kick off later. But the whole business where all the theatres start at 7.30 creates traffic chaos, it creates general crowding. But um, it's, it's basically very, very difficult to change that. It's one of those things where everybody gets... It's a bit like a Nash equilibrium. Once you fall to this Nash equilibrium, everybody gets stuck. Are there any other behaviours that have been cemented into history that we just can't shift, much like the Spanish time zone and uh, the times theatres kick off? Well, the Spanish, I mean, to be honest, the Spanish the Spanish could change it. I mean, I, 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 I'm not entirely sure what the obstacle is, because at least, at least that's something which is actually a matter for the legislature. Whereas a lot of other behaviours... Um, certainly, I mean, one thing that's... Um, I, mean, I mean, presenteeism and the idea that I mean, one thing I've always slightly resented, OK, is that you're deemed to have started work when you get into the office. Because in <laughs> truth, OK, the people with a one and a half hour commute actually start work the moment they get on the train. And I think we should give those people a little bit of a pass and say, OK, if you've got a one and a half hour commute and you get into the office at 10, we appreciate the fact that you've done one and a half hours work on the train. Also, you've done all the antisocial stuff before you have to get into the office, which leaves you free to go around the office talking to people, which is what the office is for. Whereas the people who get into the office at the crack of nine, you know, who've only had a 20 minute commute, I mean, they were asleep 40 minutes ago. So, I mean, undoubtedly, there are some pretty unfair ways in which we measure productivity, in which we measure commitment and things like that. And presenteeism, I think, has become problematic. Uh, in an age where demanding effectively, implicitly, that people reply to emails at 10 o'clock at night and at the weekend, while at the same time still demanding people pitch up at 9 o'clock in the morning, is really a bit of an unreasonable ask. I think I think that the, the workday, yes, it's true, OK, that some leisure activities like online shopping have probably permeated the workday a little bit. You know, you can unless you unless you work for a very, very strict organisation, you know, you can kind of plan your holidays and book hotels and do a few things like that while you're in the office. But for many people, the extent to which the office has 
effectively spilled over into their private life, including their holiday time. Now, in Germany, you have a law, I think, um, certainly it was instigated by Dame LeBentz, that when you go on holiday, you turn your email off. It's not just a question of the email doesn't get read. The email gets rejected with a message saying this person's on holiday. Find another solution. It's strange. Because, I mean, I, I mean e e email is a product, a product of very shoddy design because it was such an unfamiliar thing. It was designed by analogy with the letter. And even things like CC and BCC, if you think about it, their terminology from the age, not the age before the photocopier, okay? So it stands for carbon copy and blind carbon copy. Wow, okay, okay? I know that. So CC stands for carbon copy. Okay, now no one really, basically, people took the, uh, the formula for the office memo and they applied it to email with the assumption that immediate is, perf is better than delayed. Uh, and the assumption that costless and effortless is better than effortful. And for the sender, a lot of that stuff is true, okay? But for the recipient, not so much. Because before someone had to send you a memo in 1985, they had to get it typed up, they had to burn some favours with the typing pool, they had to handwrite it, proofread it, get it distributed, take it down to the photocopier room or whatever. Because there was effort in communicating, it tended to be the more valuable communications that got produced. Whereas once you make communication free, you know, it's a bit like social media, okay? You know, uh, most people didn't write a letter to the Times saying, that's bollocks, right? Because you had to put a bit of effort in, so you thought, well, I've got to put the effort into sending the letter to the Times, so I'd better put a bit of effort into writing it. Whereas if all you've got to do is click send, okay? Once you take away the friction and you take away the effort, a certain element of filtration gets lost, I think. Uh, and when I read Alchemy, I think you use a case study um, bringing this to life about, I think it's is it donations where the quality of in, uh, envelope, the perceived Paper. effort, into, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, it drove uh, donation level, right? Yeah, now I don't think anybody would have consciously said I wasn't going to give £100, but because the paper quality was 175 GSM rather than, you know, 110, I felt unusually generous. It's one of those unconscious things where effectively our brains are effectively absorbing clues and connotations from everywhere we go. You know, there are certain things that connote things to our unconscious. And what, what I think we noticed with the higher quality paper is that it didn't particularly get more donations, but it got far more donations of a high amount. And maybe it's just that putting a £110 cheque, let's say, into a really cheap flimsy en envelope just seems somehow, you know, not very zen or safe or secure or natural. Um, one of the other experiments was putting the flap of the envelope on the end, the narrow end, rather than the log, log end, to make people feel safer putting money inside it. <laughs> um, and and that, that had a 14% uplift in donations as well. So these things are really interesting because the, the human brain is running on what you might call intelligent autopilot, you know, far more than we actually realise. It's making these inferences and assumptions from 
you know, cues and clues in the environment all the time that we're not really aware of because they, they seem to bypass conscious thought. It's a bit like I've just I've just got a car that's not quite driverless, but it's got adaptive cruise control. Uh, it's also got intelligent cruise control, so it reads speed limits. And it's very interesting when you drive on adaptive cruise control, it just automatically basically follows the car in front uh, up to a maximum speed. That you realise that actually, you know, most of the time you're driving kind of without thinking. You know, when something significant happens that actually wakes up your conscious brain, you know, someone tailgates you or someone cuts in front of you or, you know, there's a tractor up ahead and you need to take evasive action. Obviously, then it, it re-enters, you know, conscious control. But most of the time, the analogy I've always heard is with the automatic camera. Yes, we have settings. We can twiddle with the shutter, the camera on a mobile phone, for that matter. Okay. Yes, you can alter the white balance and the shutter speed and the aperture level and the focus, but most of the time we don't. And I, again, yes, we can intervene in our decisions to some extent and sometimes improve them, but most of the time we don't. One of the articles that I enjoyed reading of yours was a reflection on Don Norman's work about, is it single affordability? About the Sony Walkman. Uh, it's it's afford, afford, affordable. Uh, the phrase is the affordance. Yeah, the affordance. The single is affordance. A, um, yeah, the idea that there are a lot of, when he writes in his book, The Design of Everyday Things, a lot of very simple devices are designed in a way that even though we don't realise it, we can only really use them in the way they're intended. I mean, an example of a single affordance would be, um, uh, you know, for example, you can only plug um, a British plug in one way round, you know, just to be clear about it. Um, the fact that you can't, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, there's only, I mean, I suppose it's kind of, I suppose you could put a DVD in upside down, but people don't. But, you know, there are things which essentially, uh, the perfect example is a pot, which is which has the spout on one side and a single handle. OK, and the handle is so placed that it's completely natural to pour that pot in the right way and would feel completely unnatural to pour the pot uh, incorrectly. <laughs> and so really well designed objects essentially communicate with the user without the need for an instruction manual because they are their own instruction manual. So reflecting on that and trying to personify that, as a human, should we signal single affordance or should we be more multifaceted in terms of our identity? Oh, I see what you mean. That's very interesting. Um, I don't think I, I don't think it applies to, I mean... There's an interesting question. If you're in a service industry, there is an interesting question, which is, for example, I think a bad example of human affordance is, you know, I've done my fair share of staying in, in blingy hotels on business, but I'm never quite clear. OK, I'll give you a perfect example of bad human affordance or bad affordance between humans, which is when you're in a hotel and you want to call room service, OK, and it usually has in-room dining, concierge, front desk, housekeeping. Okay, right? And there yep. may be a fifth and sixth one. You know, there's usually one for the like the uh, oh, it might be reservations for the restaurant or something, right? Okay. And 
Except in a minority of cases, it's not really obvious who you're supposed to ring. So if they haven't put one of those things that you hang on your hotel room door to request Eggs Benedict at 8.30 or between 8.30 and 8.40 with a bottle of Tabasco and a pot of coffee, okay? Um, is that in-room dining? Probably. Okay, fair enough. But it, no, no, it isn't actually because who, whose job is it? I, I, I've never worked in a hotel. Is it housekeeping whose job it is to keep the rooms supplied with those funny little hang-on-the-door things? Is it in-room dining's responsibility? Is it the front desk's responsibility? Haven't got a clue. So an interesting case of that was the W Hotel chain introduced whatever, whenever. And it was a single button which basically said, look, just press this button if you've got some shit that needs sorting and we'll take care of, you know, we'll take care of the second stage of directing your inquiry to where it's needed. And that was quite welcome. That was a notable thing with the W Hotel chain. Whenever, whatever, I think it's called or something. Obviously, because they both begin with W. So things in the W Hotel chain tend to like to begin with a W. And um, that's a good example of taking a messed up interface. Because, you know, OK, imagine it the way it works is housekeeping is who I ring if, if for example, I've murdered someone in my room and want to dispose of the evidence, OK? The concierge is the person you contact if you want a prostitute or illegal drugs or theatre tickets, conceivably. OK, and I assume, OK, the demarcation is something like that. But the, the point that the W Hotel chain noticed is that most guest inquiries aren't as clearly delineated as all that. You know, if I go, oh, I'll tell you one of the funniest stories about hotels, by the way. Um, I have only stayed in about two hotels in my life which meet one interesting criterion, which is that when you have your dry cleaning done, they replace the dry cleaning shit, like the bag and the form, uh, along with your dry cleaning being returned. Because if ever I stay in a hotel and I need dry cleaning done more than once, um, <laughs> because I, <laughs> for whatever reason, okay, no, no, I'm just I'm staying for a long time, okay. But also, to be absolutely honest, I'll be, you know, I'll be honest, okay, I'm travelling on business. The reason I tend to get a lot of dry cleaning done is it's a bit kind of crappy to come home, you know, and you know, it's it's nice to come home with a load of laundered stuff for your next trip, you see, because you leave that stuff folded in your case and you're ready for your next trip. Whereas if you take it out and get it washed, it's a totally different thing. And so um, uh, it's incredibly rare, even in fancy five-star hotels, for anybody to return the form and the polythene bag for your second bout at dry cleaning or laundry. I don't know why that is. You'd think it would be baked into the housekeeping job, which is, you know, check there isn't a dead body on the floor. Um, you know, check there aren't any turds in the toilet. Fold loo paper into triangle for no readily apparent reason. You know, put chocolates on pillow. You know, you'd think they'd include in that list of things, check that there's the dry cleaning stuff. But for some reason they don't. And I did hear an interesting story about that, which is hotels have to offer dry cleaning. OK, and it's quite lucrative because they charge quite a lot of money for it, but they hate it. And there's a reason why they hate it, which is if it goes wrong, it can be a living disaster. Right. You know, if someone's breakfast doesn't arrive, there's a plan B. OK, if someone has a bad night's sleep, well, you can apologize and, you know, comp them their room. OK, right. There's a kind of way out of most guest problems. 
But if a hotel if a hotel loses your clothes, right, and you're basically presented with the option of going to a business meeting in your underpants or in a toweling robe, okay, <laughs> uh, or going trying to go shopping at seven a.m. in Zurich for clothes that will fit you, you know, while in your underpants, it really is a living disaster. So I think hotels particularly hate dry cleaning because although it's great when it's great. In the one or two percent of times where it goes wrong, it really, really goes wrong. I'm reflecting on a really funny story that I want to share to you about concierge and how they're essentially the the handyman of hospitality. Um, I had a guest on called Andy King. Have you seen the Netflix documentary Fire Festival? Yes, I loved it absolutely, as did everybody else. But yeah, yeah, he's in jail actually. So, the guy who organised that, isn't he? Yeah. Can I just um, pause for one second? I'll just ask my wife for a, a drink. I'll I'll just go and get a drink very quick. I'll just repeat that. There we are. I've come back with a kombucha, which is a product <laughs> that nobody knew we wanted five years ago. There we are. Marvellous. I, I still don't know what it is. But the, the fire Festival story. So I had the... You might remember the scene about the ultimate team player, the person that was going to take the ultimate sacrifice to transport the water or allow the water in from customs. Andy King was the guy that was going to um, perform fellatio on the custom officer and it became an internet meme and stuff like that Um, but he came on my podcast to share his story and prior to the fire festival he created a role as the world's first corporate concierge for Pepsi and one of this like a kind of illuminating example of how he was not single affordance was because one of the examples that he helped an employee with, um, I think it was the marketing assistant came back from a holiday in the Bahamas or came back from holiday and found out on that holiday that her mother was not her real mother and that she had been adopted. And within one hour, Andy found um, the woman's real mother and got her on a flight to meet her real mother within an hour. So it just shows you the concierge is um, the ultimate handyman of hospitality. <laughs> Because I know, I know that Pepsi is very interesting on that. For example, um, Pepsi, if you work for Pepsi, they arrange for your car to be serviced while you're at work. So they do some quite intelligent things to ensure that your leisure time is kind of protected because they have people, you know, who will effectively do little things for you. Very interesting, actually. I've never, okay, not in one second have I ever asked, a, I've had a PA for years now, but in Britain, certainly, it, it varies culturally enormously. I imagine in Asia, it's totally different. Okay, I would never dream of asking my PA to drop off or pick up my dry cleaning. I, I, you know, to me, that's not that's not their job, and it's an abuse of corporate manpower. Now, in some ways, actually, I think companies should do more of that. Uh, you know, should take care of people's life problems because, you know, work's tough enough five days a week without having to go home and coordinate, you know, kitchen repairs or something. Uh, you know, and taking your car in to be serviced on a Saturday, okay, that's your weekend gone. And so having a corporate concierge, the only thing I would have said about Fire Island, okay, it's unusually woke comment for me, but... um. The diversity, in particular the gender diversity of the organisers, struck me as a problem from the off. Which is, uh, you know, um, I don't, actually at that kind of thing, I just don't, I don't think men are very good. 
at that kind of organ you know i, I mean I'm, you know i would actually know okay no that's not fair okay you could have got people in from the military okay but the, the people who did it were marketing geniuses in many ways and by the way i thought it was a very good idea you know, I mean, okay, I, I, you know, two hundred and fifty thousand, which I think was the highest price you you had to pay to go to Fire <laughs> Island, and the fact that everything was fake. It wasn't a private jet; it was a chartered airliner dressed up to look like a private jet, and that you know your villa had hadn't been built, so you were actually put in a tent, which was really designed for refugees. Okay, I mean, part of the reason it was kind of so funny. OK, if that had merely been a disaster story about, you know, a weekend uh, put on for, you know, impoverished school children, it wouldn't have been funny. Well, it still would have been a bit funny. OK, but what made it really fun? I mean, other I mean, other people's holiday disasters are hysterically funny, aren't they? I mean, schadenfreude with holidays is, you know, if someone has a really bad time normally, you don't take particular pleasure from it unless you're really sadistic. But I remember having... <laughs> Some friends of ours, um, they were arrested for smuggling pine cones. All they'd done is they collected some pine cones in Switzerland, which apparently are disease vectors, and they put them on the rear parcel shelf of their car. And um, uh, they they arrive at customs between Switzerland and France, and the customs officer raps on the window, and they have these, like, foot-long pine cones on the back parcel shelf of the car, OK? And the chap raps on their window and goes... Have you any pancones? Okay. And they, not unreasonably, think he's seen our enormous pancones and he's telling a joke, right? Okay. There's no other reason they could conceive of why a policeman would rap <laughs> on your window and say, Have you any pancones? Okay. And they try and they say, and so they decide to play along with the joke. No, 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 we haven't got any pine cones. Wouldn't dream of having any pine cones. And they drive off. And of course, this guy sees these sort of eight inch long pine cones for the first time and immediately chases them and can't understand where they're lying about smuggling pine cones. But there's some sort of disease vector. Don't ask me what. And then later on, um, the, the swimming pool hadn't been completed in the place. So it was just a hole in the ground. Which, bear in mind, would happen a lot more before the internet, okay? Because, <laughs> you know, when you went to a hotel before the internet, uh, okay, you can't trust the photographs. But the photographs can't really show a swimming pool when it's really a hole in the ground. But back in 1979, you could say, with swimming pool, and, you know, you just had to take it on trust. Oh, and then the other thing was they, they took the children to what they thought was a circus because there was a big tent in the middle of a field and it turned out to be a Communist Party rally. And they had to sit there for two and a half hours listening to people basically um, quoting Karl Marx in French, which must have been a blast for the kids, I have to say. But other people's holidays... But the Fire Island thing was particularly funny, of course, because it was kind of rich, slightly <laughs> over-optimistic people and perhaps slightly over-self-satisfied people who are mostly, but not exclusively, kind of the butt of the uh, the problem. Um, but but he, I think he's in jail. Um, the marketing was, I have to say, rather fantastic. And, of course, the marketing was a fantastic success. It was the delivery that was the problem. Uh, and Andy himself, so Billy McFarlane, the... the... The head honcho yeah. of the event is in jail, but Andy is not, of course, because I didn't podcast with him from Guantanamo Bay or anything. But he has used that single line that he went viral for. I think it was, I was fully prepared to suck his, that one line. He yeah. He's turned into a cameo. He's, he's, he, he's doing birthday messages and stuff like that. And now he's like, 
some really prolific events planner for Leonardo DiCaprio, the Rolling Stones, Mark Ruffalo, but he's used that one line, the ultimate team player, to kind of propel his career. I think it's fantastic. And it's weird how... Is there a big... Is there a big... Is he Scottish, by the way? No, or is he American Scottish? No, he's completely American. Completely American. Completely American. Okay. Mm. Um, and... I always wonder if there's a bit of a Scottish tradition of kind of roadieism because just fanatical organisational competence or whatever. Because um, the Rolling Stones had that guy who was a band member, he was Scottish, who then became kind of their road manager. They, I can't remember, someone kicked him out of the band basically because he wasn't good looking enough, okay? And the Stones, all credit to the Stones, you know, Lennon and McCartney would have just fired him and never spoken to him ever again. <laughs> okay. But all credit to the Stones. They said, well, look, you know, you're our, you're our mate. We really like you. You know, um, why don't you just become our road manager and come along? And the funniest thing was this guy was the Stones' road manager. Okay. And he was a fanatical golfer. <laughs> and this drove... This drove Keith Richards practically insane because he said, we'd be in some massive city. We just played this event, okay? And we were basically in a city where there were 100,000 girls who wanted to have sex with us, okay? And we'd be put on the coach immediately after the event and we'd find ourselves driving 40 miles out of town, okay? And then in the morning, we'd open the curtains and you'd see golf links, okay? <laughs> And this guy insisted on booking the Rolling Stones into golfing hotels because he wanted to play golf. And, uh, I was thinking, I mean, I love this guy. He, he died rather sadly young, but he sounds he sounded like an absolutely fascinating, brilliant character. I love the fact that you know he wasn't taking any nonsense. He wasn't going to book them into a city centre hotel and have any groupies or nonsense like that where there was golf to be played. <laughs> in a similar vein, um, obviously there's a massive football divide in Glasgow with Celtic and Rangers. Um, I'm kind of <coughs> impartial when it comes to football, but I have mates on either side, and I think. Like I said, I don't really follow football, but there was rumours that Gareth Bale, who was once the most yeah. transferred, uh, one of the most expensive transfers in the transfer market, I seen some Rangers fans um, put on Facebook that it's rumoured, or it could be rumoured, that Gareth Bale will play and sign for Rangers <coughs> because, as you know, he's been on the bench in Real Madrid and playing golf, so it's been rumoured within these kind of forums that Gareth Bale will be moving to Rangers uh, just for the, the kind of strong links to St Andrews and Glen Eagles and all the, all the good courses. <laughs> <laughs> Funny, isn't it? That footballers, footballers often play golf, don't they? Yeah. I suppose it's a good, it's a good daytime time killer. And it's, you know, it's probably better than anything else you can be up to. I don't play Do you play golf? No. I wish I did. No, I don't either. I've got, you know, and I haven't, I'm, I'm, it's never too late to start, as they say. And that's one thing about the game, actually. I mean, it's a fantastic game in many ways because you can play it more or less at any age. You've got a handicap system, so you can play it with people, you know, dramatically different in ability from you. Well, within reason, you know. Um, but it is really rather a fan, you know, and it's healthy outdoors. You get a nice walk. It's sociable. I mean, my father, funnily enough, who, you know, is the last person I ever would have expected to, to regret play, not playing golf, actually said the same thing. He said that he slightly regrets not taking up golf because he said it was, you know, it was actually quite a lot of positive things all wrapped around a sport. And it's similar how it's been kind of ingrained into corporate culture as well. Um, I, live, yeah. I live in Presswick in the West Coast. We spoke about how Elvis once landed at, at the airport near mine, but Presswick 
is the home of Open Golf. So uh, lots of the, the, yep. the partners at my work have visited my hometown on business trips and um, things like that. Um, but it's it's strange how the these kind of historical taglines and hallmarks increase the footfall. Um, it doesn't it doesn't infer quality. It just infers history. I find that quite fascinating. Yes. Now that's very interesting. It's very interesting that isn't it? Which is, I mean, that's the other thing. Of course, it embraces golf, embraces travel. Um, very interesting. I, I'm always really interested in these sort of economic mysteries. You know, I love books like Free Economics, and I love books like The Armchair Economist and The Economic Naturalist, um, uh, and looking at human economic behaviour or commercial behaviour through a kind of biologist's mindset. And one of the interesting ones I could never understand is why the hell is golf so huge in Portugal? Because I like Portugal, right? And I don't play golf. And I'd always want to go and stay on this Portuguese hotel. And then you go and, you know, the hotel overlooks the green of the seventh hole. And I go, well, I'm paying. I'm paying a premium for a sport that I don't play. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be staying in a hotel surrounded by golf courses. And it would piss me off. And then someone explained it to me. They said, if you're Portugal, OK, the problem the Portuguese tourist industry has, and to some extent the Spanish one, but especially the Portuguese one, being on the Atlantic, is that your hotels are absolutely packed for the summer holidays. They're quite busy for the Easter holidays, school holidays, okay? And the rest of the year is dead, right? And they said, on the other hand, if you have a golf course, what you have is you have effectively May, June, September, October, you get golfing trips, parties of old blokes, you know, in other words, with grandchildren or whose children have left home or indeed women who basically come out there to play golf in October. And so the hotel still has guests in October. And so it's a weird thing, which is the golf course isn't really there for August. It's not, you know, the hotel will be full in August without a golf course. The reason you need the golf course is actually to get any guests in sort of, you know, late September. Otherwise, the place is just dead. Have you seen that unfold with other products or services? There's like an auxiliary part of the product or service that mitigates poor footfall or poor performance in other months or other times of the year. Yeah, I mean, well, I'll give you an example of where they probably got it wrong is where Woolworths in the UK followed this Boston matrix and they concentrated, you know, they they probably kept the pick and mix, okay? But they concentrated on high margin goods like children's toys and they stopped selling things like reels of cotton, okay? And what they didn't understand, I think, was the complex dynamics whereby people went in to buy cotton and ended up buying toys. You know, that actually, you know... <laughs> I mean, you know, part of the problem with a toy shop is unless you have kids and pester power or unless it's the run up to Christmas, we don't generally go in them very often. I was debating today whether Boots does its meal deals really just to get footfall. OK, if you know you can get a sandwich, a drink and a packet of crisps in Boots for whatever it is, three pounds, whatever. OK, a lot of office workers go into Boots and buy their lunch. And then while they're buying their lunch, they see high margin items, particularly pharmaceuticals, you know, um, uh, ibuprofen, whatever it may be, which they also buy. But, you know, so understanding, I think that, you know, may in, in many cases, your your brand or business may have a Chesterton's fence. In other words, as far as you can see, it's pointless. 
but in the wider ecosystem of human behavior, it's serving a purpose which um, uh, you hadn't really uh, understood. And I think, you know, when I think Woolworth said, we don't need to sell cotton reels, they're a low margin business. And I, to be honest, I don't mean cotton reels, pure and simple, you know, sellotape, you know, practical shit like that. Because, you know, the great problem for WH Smiths really is that people used to go in to buy a newspaper. OK, so you're guaranteed footfall. And then they bought higher margin goods, in particular birthday cards. All right. I mean, cigarettes were a great thing, OK, because someone who smoked went into a corner shop every day to buy cigarettes, matches, perhaps. OK, now the corner shops didn't make that much money out of cigarettes, but they sold a hell of a lot of other stuff to the people who are buying cigarettes. So, yeah, I mean, that sort of ecosystem thing, I think, is really interesting. I've always had a vague theory that the reason Starbucks came along is that not many people smoked anymore. You know, and now, OK, this is not the sole reason, OK, but I think it's a contributory reason, which is that when, you know, people sort of need a drug in the morning to just perk themselves up, OK, uh, you know, you need what you might call a little mental aileron that just gives your brain a kind of fillip of some kind, you know, um, whether it's just to chill you out or, you know, slightly perk you up. And um, uh, nicotine was no longer doing that job. Now, OK, you know, I, I, I've got no proof of this whatsoever. It's impossible to prove because we don't have the counterfactual. We don't have a weird universe where there are no coffee shops and everybody's chain smoking <laughs> around the place. So, it's, you know, it's impossible to determine this. But, you know, I, but, but I often wonder about the, the extent to which we hold businesses entirely responsible for their performance. But quite a lot of what happens in a business can be actually independent of their own actions. I mean, the classic case being Motorola. Do you remember, you don't remember a mobile phone called the Motorola Blade, do you? It was a smartphone, very thin aluminium, silver thing. I'll do, you know. I'll do a quick Google, Rory, whilst we're on cord. Yeah, Motorola, yeah, have a look at the Motorola Blade. I, I recognise the name, I just can't remember what it looks like. Or was it the Razer? It might have been the Razer, R-A-Z-R. Oh, yes, I do remember that. I am old enough. The Motorola Razer, you remember that? Yeah, you can just about remember those, okay. They sold, Motorola sold 130 million of those, and that was in the feature phone era, not the smartphone era. And basically, they, you know, they, they were king of the handset category, and then the iPhone just came along and just redefined what people wanted from a phone, including, for example, thin and small suddenly basically lost out. Now, Dell made a not bad attempt at a big um, smartphone way before the iPhone existed, as did Nokia. But to some extent, except a bunch of, among a bunch of weirdos, including me, actually, um, at the time, the fashion in phones was small, slim and, and light. And so it didn't matter how, you know, even though these things were actually pretty good, they weren't good enough to actually basically subvert fashion, whereas the iPhone and the Apple brand, to be absolutely honest, was. You know, very interesting question. Whoa. If the iPhone 1 had been brought out by Dell, Motorola, Nokia, OK, would it have enjoyed the spectacular dominance that it enjoyed being brought out by Apple. I don't know the answer to that question. I have to say, probably not. No, what, it wouldn't have done. One of my favourite quotes from your book, Alchemy, is that capitalism is a discovery process. 
And it's, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's not an efficiency. This like everybody treats it as if it's an efficiency game, and it's not. It's a discovery game. What do you mean by um, that? Uh, well, okay, we don't we don't know what we want. Okay, genuinely, we can't describe what we want in the future. We can't really accurately and honestly answer the question: If I made something that did this, would you buy it? We think we can answer the question, but we can't. Okay. And therefore, you don't really know what people want. And as a result, um, also, the competitive set, fashion, tastes, circumstances, economic circumstances, social circumstances, um, social norms are always changing, okay? Which means that what there was a market for in 1987, there may be no market for in 2003, what seems to be a really great idea may completely fail to take off. So, I mean, one of the weirdest things, okay, extraordinary work, really, done by companies like ICI um, in producing artificial fibres all through the 60s and 70s, you know, replacement for cotton, uh, you know, well, you know, okay, there was crude polyester, but they were starting to make artificial fibre materials that felt like silk, you see. And everybody ended up wearing denim, <laughs> right? I mean, what the? I mean, if you can get, if you can tell me, other than the fact that you can slightly piss in them without anybody else <laughs> noticing, okay, right? That, so that's from a viz letter about a person complaining that the summers come around again, because he said he likes the winter because you can slightly, you can be slightly inaccurate with you urinating in the pub and nobody gets to notice. Whereas as soon as it's summer. You're wearing light-coloured fabric and urination becomes a kind of, like, you know, a delicate operation like the docking of the space station or something, right? <laughs> anyway, mm. anyway, but, but denim, denim genuinely, if you ask me to say what, okay, it's low maintenance, I guess, but mainly it's fashionable because it's, you know, it's like cowboys and, you know, I, I mean, it is a bit weird, isn't it, that this fabric became so popular? Yeah, and I feel it sounds so silly, but things such as the belt buckle is a very old piece of technology. The shoelace is a very yeah. old piece of technology. I've seen these Nike shoes that fasten themselves. There's probably a replacement for the belt. The button, these things are very vintage style technologies, but have never been changed. They're upgraded. No, and uh, I mean, you know me as an owner of a Japanese toilet. I can never understand that people are content with wiping their ass with dry paper. I get it, okay, if you just migrate to moist like loo paper, that's fair enough, you're making an effort there. You know, I don't expect you to, you know, trash your perfectly reasonable existing toilet and replace it with a Japanese one. Although if you do replace your toilet with a non-Japanese toilet, that seems a bit weird to me, okay? <laughs> but but people being satisfied with wiping their ass with dry paper is just ridiculous. Well, uh, you know, and there it really it does really really interest me. I mean, Okay, there are categories where, there and and, and th this is the other fascinating thing. Okay, there are these categories which are, albeit slow, they're ratchet categories. Like I don't know if you've got an espresso machine or a cappuccino yep. machine or okay, you wouldn't really go back to instant coffee, would you? Okay, no. Um, and you know there are there are other things of that. I mean, I've, I'm fascinated by the electric car partly because. Although it's very difficult to explain what the difference is, um, having driven an electric car, you wouldn't really happily go back to a petrol car. 
So I've had an electric car. Now, if I had to rent a car somewhere, okay, it's going to be difficult, but I wouldn't make an effort to rent an electric car because I just prefer driving them. Um, and it's it's incredibly hard to actually express in words what the difference is, but it's just there. And once experienced, you wouldn't go back. But then there are other things, you know, there are other behaviours where uh, people seem to stick with an antiquated technology for an absurdly long time. I mean, you know, you, in fairness, right, elastic-waisted trousers are a pretty good thing, aren't they? Yeah. Right? Because depending on your posture, you know, your waistband actually shrinks or expands quite a bit, depending on whether you're sitting in a car, sitting in a chair, sprawling on a sofa, whatever, walking around, okay? So to have a waistband that flexes a bit, and flexes a bit, let's face it, because we're probably fatter at certain times of the year than others, seems pretty damn sensible, doesn't it? And yet, do suits come with elasticated waistbands? Do jeans come with elasticated waistbands? No, they do not. And Velcroed shoes make you feel like a child, like you're juvenile, even though they're yeah. ten times more efficient. Typically, yeah. you put your shoes on with the laces already tied, so you're sc scraping the back of your fingers um, I just don't get it. N N Nike, th there's a wonderful guy, and I can't remember his name, but he's British, um, a British guy who who is a brilliant reviewer of mobile phone handsets, among other things. But he's got a YouTube series about the biggest tech failures of the last sort of 30 or 40 years. And it's fantastic to watch because I remember quite a lot of these things. Now, a few of them, by the way, Google Glass, I think they gave up on too soon. You can still buy Google Glass. It's used for industrial purposes. People in warehouses, that kind of thing, okay? Uh, people who need both hands free and need to be given information at the same time. So Google Glass is still manufactured, but I'd buy it, to be honest, for notifications. If it said your next meeting is in 20 minutes, you need to book a taxi now, would you know, uh, if I had a, a permanent, you know, on-eye interface which just kept me updated, you know, so, you know, um, you know, I'll need to go in seven minutes because it's seven o'clock and it just tells me what the time is. It tells me what the weather is. If there's a big news flash, it tells me, you know, I, I would have bought that. But Google Glass, um, I, I think part of the reason it failed, of course, it came with a camera that didn't actually reveal when it was filming. So it was a major privacy no-no. So the idea was that people wearing Google Glass might be filming the meeting and there was no red light to show you that's what they were doing. But also it, it got ridiculed because people were called glass holes. But it's still <laughs> fundamentally a good idea. But Nike, one of the products of the Great Failures, they mentioned these Nike self-lacing shoes, which are kind of Velcro shoes, and you put them on and they just tighten themselves, right? Yep, I've seen them. Does Nike still make them or do they abandon them? I think they're like a gimmick. So I've seen like YouTubers review them. I think they're in very kind of scarce supply and they're just kind of one of these novelty items that you never wear, but you have on a shelf somewhere as a collectible. I mean, it, is, it is a pretty good idea. I mean, okay, yeah, the point is, I suppose, that uh, how, how do you wear the same pair of shoes two days running? I never do, and I can't quite explain why not. But I can tell if I've been wearing the same shoes two days running and I don't like it. So if I go away on holiday, I'll always take a second or possibly third pair of shoes so I can alternate. But and so I suppose it would take an incredibly long time and be incredibly inefficient for all shoes to be replaced with self-lacing shoes. But what was the other failure? The most bizarre failure of Nike's 
was some sunglasses which didn't have arms that went over your ears. You, ins- I'm not making this up. You actually glued <laughs> magnets to your head, and the sunglasses attached to the magnets. And I have to say, I mean, okay, th- I mean, there may be certain sports where actually that is quite useful or a virtue. I can't think of why, but it, it was genuinely one of the weirdest products I've ever seen. Um, you know, because let's face it, you know, the sort of spectacles thing has been fundamentally solved. And, you know, if you're really worried about it, you just put an elastic strap around the back of your head to stop them falling <laughs> off. But uh, Nike literally had these sunglasses where you, you they basically went click over your eyes, but only if you'd glued two little magnets to your sk- <laughs> the sides of your skull. Um, and it is very interesting when you look at these failed products because some of them fail because they're just utterly stupid and ridiculous ideas. But more than half of them, just as I point out that actually a lot of very successful products seem quite stupid, a lot of failed products seem quite sensible. Um uh, what, what was one of them he showed? There was one thing. I mean, some of them, I've, some of them actually fail because they're just too early, or they're really, you know, the technology. Has, there's one extraordinary one, which was a company that presented at CES, which basically allowed the live pl- playing of ge- of computer games at high speed over streaming, and the idea was that um, you wouldn't need a console. You didn't need a console anymore. Uh, they just you played the game directly streamed and you paid I think thirty dollars a month for access to a whole library of games and it seemed almost sure to succeed and lots and lots of people basically mobbed the stand at CES. Uh, in fact, I, um, it might have been at the mobile phone show. Was it? I think it was at CES. Yet the extraordinary thing was. Because keen gamers already owned consoles and already owned games, they had the feeling that I think if they subscribed to this service, they were paying for it twice. And the strange thing was, such a brilliant, brilliant service, because the target audience were already invested mentally in a different solution, such a brilliant service ended up with, I think it never had more than 1,800 ongoing active subscribers extraordinary but i mean i'll find out what it was called but it was one of the most fascinating case studies but that's similar to the amazon kindle you may see a kind of collection of books behind me but i also have a amazon kindle and it's my favorite piece of technology but that was a runaway success but i guess amazon supplied both sides of that chain the physical books and the digital copies of the same book. Yeah, it's it, the one thing that annoys me is it still annoys me that i can't buy a paper book and get a Kindle copy for a couple of pounds more, okay? Um, It still annoys me that, you know, okay, occasionally you can get the audio book at a discounted price if you bought the Kindle book. But it it sort of annoys me there isn't a way to buy a book in all three formats simultaneously. Me too. Um, I don't know why that is. It's probably something to do with legislation and rights and God knows what. But it still pisses me off that I can't go, actually, all three, please, you know. Uh, one thing I was curious about was that recently I've been on a runner's high with my podcast guests. I've had people who are heroes to me, such as yourself, Seth Godin, Neil Eyal, authors that I really, really admire. But that conversation was only facilitated because I have a podcast. You never asked for metrics or viewership, neither did they. But it's weird how the podcast signals a vehicle of 
content co- like collaboration and sharing but otherwise you can i explain can i explain my logic here which is that people say um do you want to go on a podcast okay now i could ask for the metrics i suppose i could ask for payment in which case people <laughs> would mostly tell me to piss off okay because the convention is you appear on podcasts for free I'm not quite sure why because if you give a talk to a business audience you're expecting to be paid <laughs> But nonetheless, the convention is you appear on podcasts for free. My logic's always been as simple as this. Okay, one, it's recorded for posterity. So even if it only has one listener, well, at least it's there, right? And actually, in the course of the podcast, I may surprise myself because a really good conversation doesn't just allow you to learn a lot from the interviewer. Actually, a really good interviewer allows you to learn a lot about yourself in a funny kind of way. But also, my logic is just network effects, which is, look, I'm spending an hour. It's an hour, right? I don't have to leave home. I could do this podcast from a field or from a hotel room in Portugal or indeed, you know, anywhere. You know. So I'm not required to be in a specific place. That's the, that's the first point. OK, I could cancel. OK, so it's not like agreeing to give a live talk to 200 people where you absolutely have to be online 20 minutes beforehand. If some absolute crisis happened, I could just say, I'm terribly sorry, I can't do this. We'll have to reschedule. Thirdly, it's therefore a, an hour of my time with freedom as to when and where it takes place in which I will probably reach somewhere between 100 and maybe 100,000 people. OK, over time. Now, my answer is that talking to 100 people for an hour is a lot more efficient than talking to one person at a time for a hundred hours <laughs> and having to repeat yourself. And so my argument is, even if the audience is only a hundred, there's quite a good network effect there. And if the audience is a thousand or if the audience over months and weeks and years goes up even further, that's all to the good. And I haven't had to do any extra work, just more people are listening to it. And so my argument is that actually, okay, you know, it's not, it's not, um, you know, it's not a Super Bowl ad, right? You know, but nonetheless, in terms of not a bad way to spend an hour of my time, a podcast always comes up there pretty high because the opportunity costs very low. It's flexible as to when and where it takes place. And um, best of all, you know, you, you, you reach, you know, an order of magnitude more people than you would in everyday face-to-face conversation. I, I love that, Rory. And on the complete counter side of that, I'm obviously new, much younger in my career. I, I'd like to be a public speaker at some point, and I get asked to venture onto smaller podcasts, and I always say yes because of space repetition. Uh, I know you don't need this because yeah. you you have everyone chapping your door for podcast appearance, but unfortunately, I don't just yet. So I just say yes to every podcast because I just want to space myself into existence time and time again. So if I show up enough, people want me. There are a few really interesting things, which is um, you can only, and this is really interesting in terms of sort of complexity theory, you can only do the public speaking gig if you do it a lot, okay? And there are two completely separate reasons for that. One of which is if you do it very infrequently, it's very nerve-wracking, okay? So if you do one speech in front of an audience of 200 people, okay, uh, and you only do that twice a year, for two and a half weeks before that talk, you'll be bricking yourself. Whereas if you do it once a week, you're actually relatively calm until 20 minutes beforehand, okay? So you retain your sort of, you know, your sanity in that way. But the second thing is nearly all recommendations to speak come in through referral. So the more, it's, the more you do it, the more you're asked to do it. And there's a certain threshold 
be below which if you drop below that frequency threshold number of invitations drops to speak drops below number of talks you're giving and at that point of course uh you know you're you, you you've you've lost escape velocity you're basically heading to the ground and so there's that interesting threshold where you have to be above escape velocity in terms of the number of talks you do that's fascinating i I read a book um, by Albert Laszlo Barabasi called The Formula. Uh, I think it was kind of premised on network science and network theory. And it talks about, it kind of showed this experiment of, of um, Kickstarter campaigns. And there was, say, 100 Kickstarter campaigns. And they donated £1 to 50 of them and £0 to the other. And the ones that had just $1 or £1 of um, donations or... Um, funding went on to be astronomic succe astro astronomical successes but the ones that had zero continued to remain at zero and that preferential attachment yeah. drove the success of these campaigns through the roof and i wonder if that's the same with being a podcast guest uh, or a public speaker it's just almost like TripAdvisor yeah. reviews right there are very there are very few jobs actually where you are you you are t totally free to work the hours you work um, and the reason for that is even if you're a plumber, now in theory you could say I'm a plumber, I don't work on Fridays. But actually, probably the majority of your plumbing jobs come through personal recommendations. So when you turn down one plumbing job because you don't work on Friday, you're actually turning down 1.8 jobs or 1.6. <laughs> and so you know, it it disproportionately pays to be a hard-working plumber because the more people you plumb for the more people who ask you to plumb for them <laughs> and so it's it's a they're variously it's, it's a self-reinforcing feedback loop you could call it it's a you know um it, it's sometimes called the matthew effect from that line in the matthew's gospel to he that hath more it must be to him that hath the more shall be given um um and it's very interesting that quite a lot of things in life are like that. I made the point just at the opening session of Nudstock, which is there's a fundamental problem with seaside and park benches, which is people always leave commemorative benches with a bloody message that says, to my uncle Bob, who always loved sitting here. Now, the fact that he always loved sitting here means by definition there was already a bench in that bloody spot <laughs> or at least a wall on which he could sit, right? So what you're doing is you're saying, let's put a bench somewhere where there's already a comfortable place to sit, okay? And as a result, if you go to the seaside in Deal, where I've got a little flat, okay, the number of seaside benches could probably accommodate the entire population of the town <laughs> if they all wanted to sit down simultaneously, by contrast, nobody ever has a memorial bench on Platform 5 of London Bridge Station saying, in memory of my Uncle Bob, who could never find anywhere to fucking sit on this platform. Now, that's what we should be doing, because we'd then be correcting a deficiency. But instead, all we're actually doing is effectively, you know, giving, you know, is effectively piling on more where there's already more. And it's, it is problematic, because for all sorts of questions like equality, um, those things are, you know... Uh, those things are very, very um, potent forces. And it, it leads to things like, I mean, there's, not, there's a lot of competition, okay? I think I talked earlier in the first half of the podcast about hyper-competition, which is, you know, you know, I mean, you know, where, I mean, writing novels would be an extreme case, okay? Um, apparently, the average earnings of a novelist, when you correct for inflation and everything else, are about the same 
as they were 50 years ago. Unless you take J.K. Rowling and Dan Brown out of the equation, in which case everybody else is left about 30% poorer. And so the extent to which particularly globalisation drives this makes it even worse. Okay, the fact that the gains at the very top are disproportionately and actually almost pointlessly high, right? Compared to the gains only one step down. So, I mean, for example, I mean, you know, uh, if you look at the world's number 207 tennis player, right? They're a really fucking good tennis player, right? If you're number 207 in the world, you are amazingly, spectacularly good and you can turn up at any amateur tennis club in the world and you can absolutely trash everybody there, right? But you're practically living out of your car. You know, you're paying to go to tournaments. It's the exact same reason I know, know who Usain Bolt is, but I don't know who placed second in the same race that he got the world record. He has performances bounded, but success is unbounded. He has the Puma deals, he has the Virgin deals, he has the the books and all that stuff, but I don't know a single fact or even the name about the person that plays second, despite only being milliseconds not as great as him in terms of performance. No, I mean, actually, that's one, one reason why I say to people, look, to be absolutely honest, go into business, okay? Because um, uh, there's a, this is never better... Um, exemplified than by a story a friend of mine who's an opera singer told which is he was paid he was living in Zurich at the time to go and sing opera at the birthday party of a very wealthy Zurich banker and the Zurich banker got talking to him about opera singing and I he said I suppose he said I suppose opera singing is very much like banking in that many many people start at the bottom but only very few make it to the top and my friend replied yes he said except the bankers get paid quite well in the middle <laughs> he said okay and there is that argument about you know business and capitalism which is it provides you with very many opportunities to be successful and to enjoy reasonable status and for the most part you're reasonably remunerated on the way up, okay? Com you know, compared to sports stars. I mean, to give you an example, you know, I, d I don't know what you earn um, in the, th you know, the third division as a footballer. But you're, let's, let's be honest about this, okay? If you're playing in the third division of the British, English, whatever it is, okay, you're a really, really good footballer, okay? But you're not earning that much and your career isn't that long. You know, and broadly speaking, um, you know, going into some sort of capitalistic or business career gives you more opportunities to be successful in more different ways and also rewards you reasonably well in the middle. Um, and and it's, it's not it's not completely. I mean, I think, you know, CEO pay is excessive. I think it's ridiculous that the chief executive will get paid a multiple of 100 times more than someone on the shop floor of an organization or even a thousand. In many cases, it might be a thousand times more. Right. OK, I think that's ridiculous. And I think, you know, it it, it needs to be discouraged. But at the same time, you know, uh you know, wanting to be successful, you can go from the McDonald's drive-through window to the McDonald's boardroom. You know, and you know if you if you've got a, the right mixture of attitude, aptitude, and a degree of luck, because we're never gonna we're never gonna completely correct for luck. Okay, then you can do that, and I think I think it's um, you know, it, it is worth noting that we 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 venerate sport, music, okay, um, 
uh, and I suppose the third one would be drama, you know, at schools. You know, we, you know, everybody else, everybody's forced through the, the academic mill unless they're really good at sport, really good at music or really good at drama. OK, art, sorry, is the fourth one would be a fourth one. OK. But what's weird about that is they're all four are lines of business in which there is one monumental success for every thousand complete failures. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're doing art because you really enjoy it, music because you really, really love it and you can't do anything else, sport likewise, great. But enjoy it for what it is. I'm not sure that actually giving... It's wonderful for the quality of football, but is it wonderful for human happiness that 20,000 people are dreaming about being a premiership footballer or even 200,000 people are dreaming about being a premiership footballer, 2 million perhaps, okay, for everyone who actually succeeds? I don't know how great that is. It's a great observation. And I'm thinking the the inequality between a League 3 footballer and a Premier League footballer, uh, similar to the, the inequality between a drive through operator and the boardroom staff of McDonald's, is it the level of risk that merits the level of remuneration? Um, because not only do does the CEO or the founder of an organisation have the the capital at risk, but they also have the public image at risk. Similar with a Premier League football. Yes, that's a very interesting point. Which is, I suspect a lot of people who would in who think they would love to be a Premiership footballer, even if they had the talent, probably couldn't face the scrutiny. Okay, I don't know what the rate of stage fright is in football. You obviously have stage fright in music. You get very famous musicians who become absolutely paralysed by stage fright. Um, I'm trying to think of there's a fantastic uh, uh, English folk singer who was like that, who basically you know hated performing. Um, uh, it's a really interesting question. I don't think it's just that risk. I think it's a pyramid. I think it's a winner takes all uh, sort of. It's a sort of Ponzi scheme. Uh, uh, you know, at the end of it, it's where you know. It's a pyramid scheme, and people people like it. Now, my only argument is, if you're if you're really really clever, uh, you know, if you, you you might get into hyper competition. I would argue that wise people step away from hyper competition because they have the observation that the price of success, given the probability of success, is not worth paying. You know. I'll, I'll tell you a story about this, okay, about the difference between competition and hyper-competition. And it's, it, there's no better person to tell the story, which is the um, uh, tennis player John McEnroe, okay? And John McEnroe was playing on the seniors tour. You know, he was going in for, I guess he's 60 now, is he? He's probably certainly, certainly 61 yeah. or 62. But in, in his 50s, in his 40s, he was playing on the seniors tour. And the young, really, really hot tennis players in their 20s came up to him and they were quizzing McEnroe about his whole regime and approach to the game when he was basically winning Wimbledon. And they said, um, so what did you do to keep fit? And McEnroe looked at them as if he was complete, you know, he said, I played tennis. He said, no, 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 but, but what else do you do to keep fit? And McEnroe said, I played tennis, right? <laughs> So I did. You know, I played tennis a lot and that made me quite fit. And said, no, but did you do weight training? Did you do, you know, I don't know, circuit training? Did you do spin classes? Or, I don't know, Pilates? And McEnroe said, no, I played tennis, right? 
And you suddenly realise that even as recently as that, you know, tennis was actually sort of better then, actually, when it was played by human beings, not by these kind of androids, OK? You suddenly realise that you, you could still, in 1980-something, be the world's best tennis player by just playing tennis. Okay, you didn't have to, you know, you didn't have a dietitian at work every single day lecturing you about, you know, your complex carb intake. And there's only, you know, okay, okay, none of that. It's not cheating, is it? Talking about your complex carbon, it's not. It's not cheating to do weight training. Okay, it's not cheating in a way that Lance Armstrong was cheating by having his entire blood replaced, whatever it was, before any competition. Okay, but the price you're paying isn't far off, is it? You know what I mean? Well, if you're manipulating human performance to that degree in terms of counting yeah. the exact amount of complex carb and you may as well allow a quality of performance... Pharmaceutical intervention. Yep, because pe people yeah. are already doing it anyway and finding the loopholes. You may as well make it universally accepted because you're optimising almost every other variability and some people are... Breaking between the, I'm not condoning performance enhancing there, drugs, even, but there's, there's thought, but there's there's thought behind it. I, I, there is an economist who basically just said, "Look, if this is all about what, what the most a human can be, why disallow the drugs?" Okay, because you know it's so unnatural to begin with. Okay, the other thing is, is this risk of failure. Okay, which. Uh, so the successes are all very visible and the failures aren't. Now, I used to get picked up when I had a very early taxi, which early for me is like 8am, OK? I'd say to the lady who quite frequently picked me up at 8am, um, I'd say, I'm sorry to get you up so early, but I've just got to go to the airport or whatever, it's terminal so-and-so or London City or whatever. And she goes, no, 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 it's no problem. She's not early for me. I've been up since four o'clock this morning. Okay, why? Said, well, my daughter's like a county-level swimming champion. And so we have to go from Kent to the Olympic-sized pool in Crawley three days a week so she can practice before she goes to school. Okay? So they, you know, they, they were basically tooling over at pitching up at 5.30 in the morning to an Olympic pool in Crawley. She'd then presumably do like two hours worth of swimming training. This is to compete at the county level, right? Okay. And then, and then, the, then she'd have to do a whole day at school. I felt sorry for her. Anyway, then two or three years later, I hadn't seen her for a while. Same woman picks me up. How's your daughter swimming go going? Shoulder injury, all over, right? And you know, now I don't, I don't want to go and say to a load of kids, look, you know, I know you're quite promising at sport, but to be <laughs> honest, I wouldn't fucking bother. And yeah, if you've got a PlayStation, they're great, right? Okay, I don't quite want to say that. But at the same time, I'm totally happy with a degree of success where John McEnroe's been asked, what do you do to keep fit? I played tennis. I'm happy with that. He's a tennis player. He plays tennis. That's practising. The second you get into this weird stuff, okay, yeah, yeah. You pro the problem is now you've got to a point where you can't win without it. And now it's no longer about tennis, is it? It's about something slightly different. Um, that that messaging that you kind of thought about giving to that child or that mother reminds me of something that you said. I, I don't know if it was on a podcast or I read it somewhere, but it was the messaging about the life expectancy change if you quit smoking at the age of 35. Is it something like... I th yeah. Uh, it's, it, it, this is, I, I'm, I'm a bit wary about saying this on a public forum, but okay. It's a really interesting piece of information, right? Because in in theoretical terms, science would just tell us the truth, Right. 
and people would make decisions based on truthful scientific evidence. Now, Richard Dole finds two things from his smoking research, his statistical research into the uh, link between smoking and lung cancer specifically. And the two things are, if you smoke, you're much more likely to get cancer, okay, by an inordinate factor, I mean, lung cancer, uh, you know, enormous multiplier, right? Okay, so it is highly significant to early mortality, right? No, you know, I'm highly sceptical about statistics, but if you look at these statistics, there's not even any possible doubt. The other finding is that if you quit smoking before the age of 35, you end up with pretty much the same life expectancy as though you'd never smoked. Now, the interesting thing about that second fact, right, is that you want everybody to know that smoking gives you cancer, right? But that fact about 35 is a bit complicated, isn't it? Because you want everybody at age 35 to know it. You definitely want everybody to know it on their 35th birthday or maybe their 34th birthday. You don't want 20-year-olds to know that because they'll go, oh, I've got another 15, another 15 years left. OK, so it's a really, really interesting question. And I don't know the answer. You know, I, I mean, this is where it's very difficult to be purely scientific. In that you have to, you know, what happens when you come up with a scientific finding for which the behavioural consequences are problematic. Now, you could say, which I might say, actually, that now we have vaping, which is quite a reliable way for people to quit smoking in a way that gum wasn't. Maybe we shouldn't care. Maybe we should just go, look, let it, you know, my kids smoke a bit. I don't, it doesn't bother me that much, actually. They don't smoke very much. It's like, you know, they feel guilty. It's not like my time where people smoke 20 a day. You know, they kind of feel guilty if they have five, OK, and I'm not that worried about that from a health point of view. And I also know that they can switch to electronic forms, uh, you know, if they need to, when they get to 33 or whatever. But it's a, but it's a tough one, because the other problem is, by the way, is if 40, if 35 year olds don't know that they may go, well, I've been smoking since I was 20. Damage has already been done. What's the point of quitting now? And if you tell them, well, actually, you're only 35, so if you quit now, your life expectancy basically goes back to that of a non-smoker, they'll quit. Whereas if they think, well, damage has already been done, water under the bridge, what the hell's the point, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound, then they won't quit. I, 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 don't, I don't know what to do, you know. I, I mean, you know, but all I'm saying is that you can't just present scientific facts as if the human behaviour that results as a consequence will be necessarily what you think of as optimal. I don't know the health statistics around vaping, but it seems that vaping socially is portrayed as the exact same activity as smoking. Um, but they seem like... It's not really. It's, not, it, it's To be honest, it's on a par with coffee drinking but, or something like but that. So, uh, but, so, uh, uh, but socially, we're, ma yeah. we're made to stand outside with the smokers, so they're very married. Asking people who are quitting smoking to go and stand outside with a lot of smokers is a terrible thing to ask people to do because I said, that's like holding a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in a pub, <laughs> right? Right, you're exposed to constant temptation. Oh, can I just have one of your Marlboro lights, right? Let them, let them vape inside. It's not inconveniencing anybody. 
It's not doing anybody any harm, that's for sure. I don't even think I don't even think passive tobacco smoke was doing anybody any harm. Actually, I think they concocted that. By the way, this isn't me speaking, right? Okay, this is me speaking as a result of listening to some pretty damn good scientists who say actually they were desperately looking for statistics that showed a massive correlation between living with smokers and getting lung cancer. And the truth of the matter is they didn't really find any, so they cherry picked about four studies which seemed to show a link okay and um uh, they they were desperate for the use of passive smoking statistics because it took away the argument well i'm not hurting anybody but myself uh -huh, okay and one of the questions i wanted to ask you was about the kind of one hour window that we had to exercise during lockdown do you think there was a greater uptake in exercise because of the scarcity bias <coughs> Really, really interesting point, and uh, quite likely, yeah. Certainly a lot of people during lockdown lost weight, which is kind of interesting, because it's not what you'd expect. Now, I don't have the data on this. I've only got anecdotes. But weirdly, instead of people going, oh, my God, I put on a ton of weight during lockdown, you seem to find quite a lot of the opposite. A friend of mine who's a scientist, science writer for The Economist, lost something like, uh, I think, uh, 30 or 40 pounds during lockdown. Um, whether the exercise thing, you're absolutely right, by rationing it, you made it seem more desirable and you made it seem more of a missed opportunity if you didn't exercise. Absolutely fair. Yeah. Well, I wanted your opinion on the, the content creator platform OnlyFans. Do you think that has the same effect? Because like pornography is free online, but people subscribe for online pornography that's ring fenced by a paywall. Do you think that has the same effect? Or same with Patreon. There's um, the kind of content for YouTubers and stuff. There's free content on YouTube online, but you can watch the same creator by paying £3 a month. Do you think it's a scarcity bias that drives that? I mean, the, the only thing with porn, in some cases, people are paying for personalised filmmaking, aren't they? So in other words, they get to... I, 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 I'm not an expert on this, trust me. But from what I can understand is that you know, a lot of people have a particularly interesting paraphilia, and so they're asking someone to, you know, I don't know, make love to an inflatable goat or something. <laughs> I don't know. Right, okay. And so you can't get that on mainstream free stuff. So that that may be some of what's going on. That may, may be just a sort of personalised thing. Or that, you know... Um, I mean, there's a fantastic um, category of person, by the way, and I'm not making this up, who are effectively financial masochists. <laughs> Okay, and these are guys, and they must be. It must you must be really onto the mother load if you find one of these guys. If you're a sex worker, they have no urge to have sex. Okay, they have no urge necessarily to meet you in real life, but they want to be financially humiliated, and so it's a peculiar form. I, my guess is they're all accountants or something. Okay, right. But literally, your job is to say, my shoes are disgusting. You are such a useless worm. I want you to buy me a £250 <laughs> pair of Manolo Blahniks. And they go, yes, mistress, certainly, mistress. Let me know your address. And they buy the Manolo Blahniks, at which point they become slightly tumescent. I, I don't ask me how this works, right? Okay. okay. <laughs> and they go and buy them. And they feel suitably pained and humiliated by the woman demanding they spend money on them. And that's it. OK, and so you basically if you've got one of these guys, you just go, my gas bills come in and you're such a worthless scumbag. You're going to pay it for me. OK, 
Now, can you imagine a better arrangement than that in terms of wealth exchange? I think it's fantastic. It's especially now that um, fuel prices are going through the roof. Um, I know, I know. It's going to be, they're, going to be, they're going to be absolutely orgasmic, aren't they, when they get those gas bills coming in? It's going to be fantastic. What do you think the psychology that underpins that, what do you think that is? Why would like it like, makes no well, it's, 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 rational? It's a it, <coughs> you need to read the books by a guy called Jesse Behrens, who's written a book called Perv, uh, which is generally best read on the Kindle, not on the if you're reading it on the tube, okay. And another book called Why Is the Penis Shaped Like That, and it's the evolutionary origins of various sexual phenomena. Fantastic. And pa- paraphilia uh, are quite weird. And it's probably something to do with a childhood memory, okay, or some childhood association, uh, which has somehow become embedded in your head and so has very strong associations with some early sexual memory. Now, an interesting question, okay, is um, will stockings necessarily retain their erotic appeal for another 50 years? Now, you know, because, okay... You can understand how stockings became because most women wore stockings. Therefore, early sexual experiences, even in childhood, would be characterised by the exposure to someone riskily wearing stockings. Okay. Now, interestingly, you know, high heels is another paraphilia, right? What's going on there? Don't know. I mean, I mean, genuinely, okay. But there do seem to be these sort of weird things which are seen to be erotic. Now. Where does that all go? Where does it come from? Will it actually diminish or will people still find stockings and high heels erotic in 200 years' time, even if we're all wearing aluminium foil <laughs> suits or whatever? I don't, I, I, I genuinely, really, really weird stuff. So where, I mean, obviously that financial masochism thing comes from some sort of, um, that actually I suppose it's that, okay, there are two ways you can treat someone badly. You can treat them badly physically or you can treat them badly financially, you know. And these people, for whatever reason, just get their rocks off on being financially exploited. It's such a fascinating kind of underworld almost. Uh, I mean, it has to be a woman doing it, I think, you know. Uh, although I presumably the same thing exists in, in, in uh, same-sex relationships. I don't know whether the same thing exists in same-sex relationships. But where it's actually you derive some pleasure from effectively being financially exploited. And there's that famous scene in The Private Function, which I think is the uh, the film about Cynthia Payne, the famous Stretham Madam. And she had various people who she made weed the lawn and sort of do gardening work as slaves. And they were probably like high court judges and, you know, um, cabinet ministers and God knows what, okay. And um, she's she's there as these people are cleaning the garden and she says... um, uh, and one of her assistants comes up and says, there's a bit of a problem with the slaves. Um, they want to know about payment. And Cynthia Payne says, well, of course they're not getting paid. Uh, they're slaves. <coughs> and they said, no, 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 they want to know how much they should pay you. <laughs> <laughs> and so you do get, you know, I suppose you do get in various sexual things. I mean, I've always thought, okay, this is a weird theory of mine, and bear with me, okay, it may be bollocks. <laughs> but I don't think any bloke found... Fifty Shades of Grey, remotely attractive or appealing or erotic at all. Is that fair? Because here you have the strange thing when lots of women were reading a pornographic novel and therefore men had permission to read a pornographic novel and yet for the most part they didn't. 
And my theory is that I don't think it works. See, I don't think it works for blokes. And let me explain why, which is that I think most blokes know instinctively that if you are a hugely powerful billionaire with a helicopter and a private jet and an enormous yacht and you had lots of minions you could boss around, then in your sexual life, you'd be into submission, not domination. Because domination is too much like the day job, isn't it? Right. Okay. That's what you do during the day. So you'd actually say, I want to be dressed up in an Edwardian schoolboy's costume and have and, and, and have you know, Nazi nuns throw cream cakes at me and tell me I'm horrible, right? <laughs> okay? That's what you know. If you're actually Christian Grey, you wouldn't actually want to boss people around and dominate them because, you know, that's like work, right? Oh. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> All right? <laughs> Oh, but if you were actually that powerful, and I don't think women realise that, but I think men do. And I, 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 I wonder if it's almost has the same effect on sexual expectations as does porn, because I think it probably dro- it probably drove up the expectations of a female. Sorry, drove up the expectations of a male during sex. Um, for the female, they probably went into their relationships expecting more of their partner. But then on the flip to that, men probably felt quite emasculated by it because they weren't performing some of the same acts that were demonstrated in the film. Much like how <coughs> pornography is cinema... It's not its not sex, it's cinematic lovemaking. Um, I, I wonder what effect that had on the performance and perception of uh, sexual encounters for men. No, I mean, that, I mean, we, we don't know. I mean, generally, people tend to be quite naively optimistic about this and just go, well, it's certainly true that, yes, people play violent computer games without necessarily becoming violent. There's a theory that actually, you know, street violence and general violence has been diminished by people playing violent computer games. And to be honest, none of the data is all that great, but it certainly isn't, you know, what it presents isn't currently terrifying. Certainly. But I don't know if I don't know if actually we can confidently say that access to free porn, uh, um, pretty hardcore porn, not very hardcore porn, I'd guess, from the age of let's face it, thirteen, fourteen. I don't I don't think we can confidently say that has no effect on what people think, expect, or anything else. Um, and um, I, I, I so you know th- there's an interesting question here because. The anti-porn crusaders are actually an interesting kind of alliance of slightly merry White House conservatives who don't like the filth and pretty hardcore feminists who don't like what it effectively implies or what it may be, um, what it may be imparting. And a lot of the time, you know, the, the tendency was for 20 years to go, you know, anybody who opposes pornography is fundamentally just uptight and moralistic. Okay or out of touch or old-fashioned or a religious obsessive or whatever it may be, okay? And I don't think, put it this way, I don't know where I stand on the debate. I haven't got a clue. It's one of those debates where I just go, I don't know. You know, um, uh, you know, I probably will make my mind up one way or another, but I certainly haven't made my mind up now. But I'm certainly not 100% confident that the laissez-faire brigade have got this right. No, I, I, I mean, I think we, you know, we should keep a watching brief on this, particularly as things come in like virtual reality, which may have a stronger effect. You know, you know, you know. Okay, um, you know, there's, you know, I mean, violent pornography and virtual reality is that different 
if you participate versus if you watch if you, you know even non-violent activities what does that actually you know lead you because quite a lot of our learnings are actually kind of embodied you know we learn by doing and it's fair to say that by watching we're not actually doing but here we might actually be doing it is a very scary con consideration for the future i've not thought about pornography in the metaverse at all i've thought about no loads of other things well, it already it, there was already a problem which is there was an early experimental metaverse and then there was you know within sort of minutes of it opening there was a sexual assault or something and then this whole question has arisen which is what are the legalities of this stuff because the people who assaulted the person haven't committed a crime probably although you know that's open to interpretation i guess but uh, how how then do you discourage and prevent this kind of coercive behaviour? It's fascinating. I have another because we're not because we're not very nice. I mean, not everybody. We're generally not. If we've got anonymity, and we also have no fear of consequences, this is Gyges and the Ring in Plato. Okay, we're not necessarily very nice people. I'm not saying we're inherently nasty. But undoubtedly, some part of our behaviour is moderated both by reputational fears and by fear of consequences, retaliation or whatever it may be. And so, so you know, I, we, we, we've seen we've got we've got social media wrong. OK, what's the likelihood that we won't get this wrong as well? And on the flip to that, good behaviour is driven by instant gratification and close and now like following singer's paradox i think singer's paradox was where he presented a kind of dilemma to his, his class kids and he said or his students and he said if you were to be running late for my lecture today and you were to be walking past a pond and you were to see a child drowning would you save them despite it meaning you would be five or ten minutes to this lecture of course they said yes we would we would save a life because saving that child's life the benefit of that yeah. outweighs being five or ten minutes late. And then he asked the same question again. Would you do it if there was a crowd of other people around who equally could save that child? And they all said yes. The the benefit of being of saving a life outweighed being wet that's, uh, and, and so on. And then he said, well, in fact, you have the opportunity to save a life every single day. If you were to PayPal $20, you could save a, save a life yeah. in a third world country. But it, because it's not close and now and you're not getting any gra instant gratification for it, you will not perform that good behavior. It's fascinating. No, and uh, that, that that's a very, very interesting question. And by the way, it's interesting because, you know, uh, in, in both cases, you can say, sorry, I'm late for the lecture. I just saved the life of the child. <laughs> and you can similarly look like a hero in front of onlookers by saving the child. There's a wonderful P.G. Woodhouse short story where the guy has saved someone from an oncoming tram by leaping into the road, as a result of which their shirt is coated with mud. And they're in a dinner jacket and they turn up at a dinner party with their shirt totally coated with mud. But everybody's too polite to mention it. So they never get a chance to tell the story about <laughs> having saved someone's life. Because everybody just refuses to actually acknowledge the fact that they're coated in mud. Because, it, they, you know, they're too English and reserved to do it. I can't remember where it is. It's somewhere in, I can't remember, one of the... Um, might be in one of the Eucridge or one of those things, but it, it, but it's a fantastic story. But no, I mean also there's no uh, there's no fear of blame. Nobody says you bastard. Do you give twenty dollars to charity yesterday? No, you bastard. Okay, you know. So there's an element where avoidance of downside risk is much more potent in terms of behaviour, and that makes sense in evolutionary terms. Okay, you know, 
Um, I mean, if you think about it, people take extraordinary risks in the military, probably motivated through fear of shame, uh, you know, and, and shame in the eyes of their, you know, um, uh, fellow soldiers. Um, that, that must be driving quite a bit of it. Definitely. Um, it's fascinating. I've, I've got one more question for you, Rory, or two more questions. Of course. Why should people have two dishwashers? Ah, this is one of those interesting things which is only obvious in retrospect, which is if you say, why, you know, well, I'm, I'm not running a pub. Why would I need two dishwashers? I don't have that many plates. And it's completely non-obvious until someone explains it to you, which is when you have two dishwashers, you never have to unload the dishwasher. Because you have a, an empty dishwasher, you fill that with dirty plates, okay? Then you turn it on and that's the clean dishwasher, okay? And then eventually you take those plates out and you put them back into the other dishwasher after you've used them. And what was the clean dishwasher becomes the dirty <laughs> dishwasher. And you can cycle between the two and therefore your dishwashers provide a form of storage and you never actually have to unload the dishwasher and put something back on the shelf. So it's inordinately more efficient, but it's completely non-obvious until it's explained to you. After that... Which kind of fascinates me. Yeah. After that sentiment, I'm going to try to reach out for like a Bosch sponsorship after that. People will be buying two dishwashers yeah. after this podcast. Um, so... In fact, in fact, you can actually buy on Amazon uh, little things which have a little rotating wheel on them and they're magnetic. And you buy two of them at a time and they can say clean or dirty. Now, I think, to be honest, they're more commonly used in pubs than they are used in homes. But you can actually buy that on Amazon. And the whole point is that you cycle from dishwasher to one to table to dishwasher two. Then when you finish the cycle through to dishwasher two, you turn dishwasher two on and then you simply rinse and repeat. Whereas in another world, you have to empty a dishwasher before you can put anything dirty in it. So once you think about it like that, you realise it's a spectacular time and motion win, but it's completely non-obvious beforehand. Whilst I've got, yeah, I've actually got two more questions, Rory, because there was something that Go really, on. really fascinated me that I wanted to unpick your brain about. You spoke about how, even reflecting on the Ogilvy recruitment, uh, the Ogilvy position of employment in the 80s, that the work they started at nine, finished at five, when you're in the office, that's when your day started. I also think yeah. the interview and the recruitment process hasn't changed probably since the 80s. It's still um, probably a logical reasoning test and an interview. The interview itself, to me, seems like such an outdated technique to measure someone's capability and success. I also think the CV similarly is the same, but we haven't changed, really changed those recruitment processes in 40, 50, 60, 70 uh, years. I, I, think you do, I think you do need to interview someone. Um, and there are all sorts of things which a sort of, you know, which tests, which paper tests can't capture. One of which being, for example, we, I mean, I'll just give you an example. We can probably spot psychopaths face to face in a way that we can't spot psychopathic behavior on paper, just to give an example. Yeah. So I don't, I don't fully know why people perform interviews. OK, but it, if you look at it, it may not be an optimization thing. It may be a because if you think about it, the interview comes last. You don't interview everybody, partly because it's time consuming. But is that the final check, which is 
you know, are we making a, a, a huge mistake here? I'll tell you a very funny story. You know, we once interviewed and um, uh, uh, someone who'd done very, very good work, who was extremely good, who interviewed extremely well, and they interviewed so well, we thought, well, why don't we just, it was the end of the day, why don't we just go out for a few drinks, okay? And the, the extraordinary thing was, after a few drinks, this person became a complete arsehole. <laughs> I mean, to an extraordinary, I mean, to extraordinary, you know, sort of sexist and, you know, and, and, you know, and actually, you know, it was at that point, we basically looked at each other and said, okay, this hire is not happening. Now, okay, you can't actually get people drunk in an interview, but the interview may reveal things that no amount of paper assessment can ever actually reveal. Now, if you, it's, it's kind of interesting, I suppose, because the Persians, used to have a decision-making process where they debate a subject sober and then debate the same subject drunk. And it's only if they came to the same conclusion when drunk and when sober <laughs> that they actually went ahead with the idea. That was a kind of weird test. But there's something kind of interesting. In this. They were on to something there, OK, which is if this idea seems a good idea to our animalistic selves and it seems a good idea to our more rational, sober selves, then it probably has a greater chance of success than if it only works in theory or it only works in drunkenness. I really like that example, and I agree with you. Interviews are far superior than paper-based tests. But I don't think it should be the gatekeeper for employment. It should just be a supplementary part of the recruitment process because it's almost like a tinder for me it's almost like a tinder bio you show your highlights you signal what they want to see and in terms of like i'm, I'm an advocate for social mobility i chair an employee network i found an employee network and i think it's quite discouraging yep. because I, I, the, the whole question the whole question about how we hire is uh, deeply fraught and problematic from a choice architecture perspective. And you may be right. I mean, maybe if time were less of an issue, you'd actually interview people first. They'd meet that. They'd basically meet your interview criteria. And then you, you would go on and subject them to other tests and considerations. I think that's probably fair. Um, uh, also, there are, there are a whole load of problems in organisations, i.e. people basically hiring people who resemble themselves. The fact that we actually re we hire for discipline, for specific job functions, whereas what we should be doing is hiring people who are generally interesting and then finding out what they're good at, actually. That would be a much better and more economical way to hire in the uh, in the medium to long term. But we don't do that. We have a vacancy. We hire to fill the vacancy. That makes sense. So, because 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 nearly everybody, okay, anybody good, okay. If you've know, if you've been in a workplace and you know people who are very good, it's not difficult to imagine jobs in which they'd be very very bad, is it? No, not at all. So it's patently clear that there are jobs within your organisation where you know if you give someone enough time to find their niche, they can probably find something they're very good at, and you can actually write the job description and design the organogram around the people you have. Yeah. But instead, we, we let the organogram come first and then fill it with people. I can imagine the job description is quite paralysing because you will present that version mm. of yourself in the interview and you won't you won't show the, the kind of other facets that make you you that could be beneficial to the organisation in retrospect. I mean, the social mobility thing is very interesting because there is a school of thought. It was started by a lawyer, I think, called... Fishman, Fishback, we can't remember. But there's a very interesting lawyer in the States who said that actually we're always talking about equality of opportunity, okay? And actually, it's a deeply flawed idea. What you actually want is plurality and diversity of opportunity. 
You want to create a world where lots of very different people with very different talents, very different strengths, very different weaknesses can all find a place in which they can contribute to the best of their ability, but in different ways. Whereas what we've done is we've created this sort of academic sorting hat where in the interest of fairness, we apply the same criteria to everybody. Now, the problem with applying the same criteria to everybody is that it is of its nature unfair because people are different, okay? There are, and I know many of them in the advertising industry, people who are extraordinarily brilliant, talented, competent, capable and everything else, but who just aren't academically inclined. You know, if you ask them to solve a real world problem, they'd show elements of genius. If you ask them to write a 4,000 word essay about the origins of the Peloponnesian War, they'd find it utterly boring and pointless, right? And yet what we're doing is we're using this proxy measure. And the other point they make about this equality of opportunity thing is that it says, okay, it's absolutely vitally important that the people who get to the top, that everybody has a chance of getting to the very top. And that the people who are at the bottom are at the bottom because they deserve to be at the bottom. Okay, right? Not through social contact, connections, networks, luck, etc., but because it's deserving. But what you're doing there is automatically assuming a hierarchical society, a highly hierarchical society. You're saying, well, obviously there have to be, you know, people at the top who are really, really well paid and deserve every penny. And provided those people are deserving through some, you know, ludicrous proxy measure of academic performance, provided they're deserving of that place and can show that they've worked hard to get there, then we don't have to worry about the structure of society because meritocracy is taking care of that for us. But, you know, I'm, you know, I, I prefer, I, I'm, you're, you're, we're both Celts, right? I'm kind of Welsh Scottish with a bit of English. Um, I think one of the things you might say is that Scottish and Welsh and Irish society is a bit less hierarchical than Anglo-Saxon, isn't it? Is that fair? Um, it's a bit, there's a sort of egalitarian thing in Scotland, isn't there a bit, which is, I don't know, there's in Wales a bit. Australia's a bit the same, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, you know, you don't you don't get too big for yourself, you know, nobody's that small. Um, I, I don't know. I, but, but, you know, I, 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 you know, I like those sort of semi-egalitarian sort of Swedish, you know, Scandinavian societies. I don't want, you know, massive hierarchies of things. So, kind of, Leading on to my last question, based around that, I know you have two daughters who I'm presuming are probably not too far from my age, maybe shy of their 20s, I don't know. What advice would you give them, or give me, as mid-20-something-year-olds, to navigate this sense-making, rewarding world? Yeah, the, one, the, the two things I think are really good practice for it are the only things I've found, and I'm sure there are more of them. Uh, funnily enough, I've got a little bit of uh, credibility here because I've had a conversation with Daniel Kahneman about cryptic crosswords. I think cryptic crosswords and things like detective fiction, you know, solving riddles and puzzles, I think is quite good practice for it. What I like about cryptic crosswords is that your job is there's a surface meaning to the clue and your job is to get beneath it and to reassemble the clue so that it delivers its true meaning, which then helps you solve the problem. And I think that's just an important, it's just a really important thing to learn to do, which is don't be satisfied with the surface explanation for anything. Ask if there's something deeper going on. Or if, if you know, in, in detective fiction, of course, you know, there's always some element of a masquerade or a pretense. And the job of the detective is to find out what really happened and what people really think, as distinct from what they're pretending happened or what they're pretending to think. 
And so in that way, I think any kind of discipline which just helps you practice looking at something in more than one way and being as content with seemingly outlandish explanations. Uh, so, I mean, the standard education narrative is, is that education has a high correlation with earnings, okay? Therefore, the more people you educate, the more they earn. And the, re the way education does this is by imbuing those people with necessary skills. Now, if you look at the education system, okay, there are people who've done medieval French <laughs> who are like running corporations. The idea that they acquire these, the skills they acquired learning medieval French, and, and the argument is that actually what may be happening is actually causation running in reverse, which is that um, companies desperately need to decide who they should hire. They use the educational system to decide who they put on a fast track. And as a result, okay, it isn't that people are... That, um, education is providing people with skills. It's simply giving people who already have those skills credentials that make them marketable in the labour force. Okay, so there's a credentialist element to education rather than the skills uh, element. <coughs> and if you look at it like that, and by the way, both can be true. Okay. Undoubtedly, the skills argument is slightly true of, say, engineering or particle physics, okay? And the credentialist argument is undoubtedly slightly truer of people who, um, uh, you know, have studied, you know, medieval French poetry, right? And then end up running a, you know, a, a, a state, you know, a, a ministry of state or something, right? And to some extent, then... Uh, what you could say is that the education people are not actually providing anything of value. What they're doing is they're selling you an interview suit for £27,000. <laughs> they're selling you the, 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 the means to prove your innate ability, which is necessary to start on the course towards positions of high reward. But they're not actually... It's nothing to do with the education. It's simply to do with the fact that by... Acquiring a degree from Russell Group University, it proves a mixture of determination and basic sort of literacy and competence in thinking. But lots of other people can be possessed of those skills without acquiring the credential. Yeah. And what started happening in what started happening in Silicon Valley was people would go along to Google or they'd go along to um, tech firms and they'd say, Look, I've got an admission letter to Harvard here. That's Harvard offering me a place, right? I don't want to go to Harvard. It cost me $250,000. I want to work for you. And the people would say, you got the job. And the reason was that the admission letter to Harvard, which was free, because Harvard just sent them a letter, they even paid for the postage, okay, was nearly as good as proof of that person's <laughs> basic intelligence as the fact that they spent three years at Harvard or four years at Harvard and got a degree from it. Oh. So these people were fond of basically gaming the system and saying... It's actually having gone to Harvard that's the thing that gets you a f fantastic job. Sorry, it's having got into Harvard, not having gone there. And the comedian, the, the, the comedian um, Louis C.K., I think it was, um, who made this point, he said, you know that Harvard admissions scandal where all those people faked their way in by pretending to be water polo players and therefore getting a kind of pass academically because their parents would donate $3 million to the water polo academy and then this person would sign a thing saying this person's a brilliant water polo player, we need them in, okay? And it's, it's Bill Burr, sorry, it's Bill Burr who said this, not Louis C.K. He said, 
What's interesting is those people didn't flunk out of university. They got, they, they got degrees, right? right? Right. Okay. Now, if it were really the degree which was proof of your ability, people wouldn't fake their way into Harvard, would they? Because then they wouldn't be able to get a degree because they weren't good enough. Yeah. But that's not how it works. It's getting in that actually basically boosts your earnings, not having been there. And as a result, you could say that essentially, you know, universities have become a kind of accommodation business with a small pedagogic business attached. It's almost um, the equivalent of... It's tough. It's almost like trying to get into Bergen, the nightclub in Germany. You have to wear the outfit to get through the door. I've heard about this. Right? That's mm. essentially what it is. It's institutional signalling. Um, mm. uh, and it, for me, it reminds me of wearing a flashy outfit to get into the nightclub that you you shouldn't really be in. Uh, have, have you been to that nightclub? What is it? It's in Berlin, is it? It's in Berlin. I've never been. I've just seen content online about it. But it's a, a very exclusive club. And the sole identification process is you dressing edge, ed edgy <coughs> and I think in all black. Um, yeah. And th that reminds me of these institutional, um, what, what, the, the benefits of going to these institutional universities. It's the outfit yeah. that gets you the access, not the the identification. And, and of course, the other, the other value of the university may be the social network you derive from it as well. Yeah. Yeah. So... But it's problem. So it's problematic because okay, here we have this this interesting thing, which is um, we ha we have a thing called the pipe at Ogilvy, which deliberately recruits non graduates. Now, you can apply for it as a graduate, and we certainly wouldn't reject someone because they had a degree. The only point of this recruitment path is that it doesn't require you to have a degree in order to apply. We select people on other criteria, okay? And occasionally, quite often, in fact, we offer people a job, and they say, "Well, I've got a problem here because you're offering me." A, a, a job that doesn't require a degree and we say that's right technically although you have a degree um, if you'd turned up without your degree we still would have offered you the job and they go well I feel really uncomfortable accepting that job that's a good job right you can go from there to run the agency if you're good enough in 25 years time no one even knows you weren't a graduate you know five years after you've started it's not you know it's not like anybody cares what degree you've got when you're 27 right no one gives a shit okay and they go, yeah, but if I if I spend £27,000 going to university and then I take on a non-graduate job, I feel like I've wasted 27000 quid. <laughs> and my argument is if, if, if universities are actually adding skills, you should say, I'm really glad I spent that £27,000 because it enabled me to get this job at Ogilvy on the strength of my visible talents, abilities and everything else, not the bit of paper I was awarded by the university. And similarly, I joined my profession through an apprenticeship program. I didn't go to, to university, but I come from a kind of lower socioeconomic background and my peers who have went through the apprenticeship route, I found them going into very technical roles, roles that aren't performative, where they haven't, they don't have to public speak, auditors, analysts, actuaries, no, no. whereas I've went into consulting, I have a podcast, I do loads of public speaking. I, I spoke to Her Majesty the Queen about my own social mobility journey, which is something one of my peers would never do. However... I think that's because of the lack of the academic validation that they have. So they need to kind of have imposter syndrome adaptation where they go into a really technical role to prove to themselves that they are academic enough to fulfill that role. And there are also signals in all kinds of ways between the confident educated, which they radiate to each other, which may even be invisible to people outside. But uh, if you know, so there, there's an argument that universities are to some extent a sort of finishing school. 
you know, that they teach you modes of behaviour, just normative modes of behaviour, which mean that you'll find it much easier to get accepted in certain milieu or certain settings. So you could argue there's an element of that as well. That's fascinating. So well, yeah. I'm, I'm so sorry. I've got a dash because it's, it's eight o'clock, um, but uh, I've, I've got an American call. But um, I, I can give it another couple of minutes. Don't worry well, about this, that. this is a great fun, Maurice. One of the best couple of hours combined I've ever had. You're one of my heroes. Um, I, Likewise, I'm, I'm really intrigued. I'd, I'd, like to, I'd like to interview you in reverse next time. So fantastic. Well, what an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. No, thank you, Rory. I'll put all your handles and such in the, uh, in the link below and all your recommendations of books. Thanks for stopping by. I've enjoyed this immensely. Thank you very much. Bye.